and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Our visual systems are easy to fool. Whether it's simple optical illusions or more complex magic eye pictures, sometimes there's more to what we see than what we see. Teaching team member Jeff Norris starts the series, Neighboring Where You Live, with this message entitled, See Your Neighbor, which covers Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're starting a new series. Uh, finished up the authentic life last week as we've been walking through the highlights of 1 Corinthians. This week we're jumping into uh, what we're calling neighboring where you live. We're fully aware that neighboring is probably not a word, uh, but we're, we're using it as a verb anyway. And it's kind of a part two to a series that we did a couple years ago called Love Where You Live. And in that series a couple years ago, Love Where You Live, our main focus, the big overarching focus of, of that uh, five-week uh, series was what many uh, theologians and, and scholars call the cultural mandate, that which, which comes out of Genesis 1.28. That's the verse that says uh, to Adam and Eve where God says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And then again in chapter 2 of Genesis, he says, work and keep the garden. Make it beautiful, in other words. Uh, and this is all pre-sin. So God is basically giving this mandate that the place where you live, Adam and Eve, cause it to flourish bring it to life and use it for the glory of God. And so a big part of that series two years ago was about the places where we live. How can we uh, bring the redemptive work of God into the places where we live, work and play to where they can begin to experience the culture, the communities, the systems can begin to experience the redemptive work of the kingdom of God. So that was the big arching focus of two years ago. Where we're pressing in in this series is we're taking that big picture and we're zooming in from place to people. Specifically, we talked about people in the last series, but we want to zoom in on that one where we're, if the last one was the cultural mandate was the main theme, the main theme for this one is the Great Commission. To go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, even and, to, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. This is the great commission where Jesus, in his last words before he ascended into heaven, said, go to the people and make disciples. And so really, primarily what we're talking about is we're talking about our neighbors. And neighbors can be, and we'll see this in the text that we're going to look at today, neighbors can be anybody that you come in contact with. Believing and understanding that nothing in life is coincidental, that we serve and, and love a providential God. There is nothing that's happenstance, uh, that every person that we come in contact with, either the ones that we live next to or the ones that we pump gas to at the gas station, all of them are within the providential work of God of who he's placed in front of us that day. And so we're talking about neighbors. Now in this series, we're going to focus in on literally neighbors, those who live next to you. But I also want you to keep the bigger picture of neighbors or anybody. Anybody that you may come in contact with. But here's the basic question that we're asking. How has God positioned me where I live to love those around me like Jesus loves me? Now we'll talk a lot here at Perimeter about the places where we live, work, and play. 
How has God positioned me where I live, work, and play? But in this series, we want to think specifically about where we live. Where has he placed me, where I live, to love people the way that Jesus loves me? Uh, quickly, let me give you uh, some of the books that we're recommending for you to, uh, to potentially look at and read uh, during this series. We, we, we will only scratch the surface in a 35-minute sermon. We talk about this often as a teaching team. We feel this great weight of how can we communicate everything that we long to communicate in just a short amount of time on a Sunday morning. And so we will hopefully prick your hearts a little bit enough to where you go, I want to learn more about that. And so if that's where you land at the end of this series or even after this first week, then we would encourage you to check these books out. Here's the, here's the five we're recommending. The Art of Neighboring. And all of these, by the way, are, are available in our bookstore for you to purchase this morning and they're on display, easy to see. But The Art of Neighboring by Pathak and Runyon, A Meal with Jesus by Chester, uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, outstanding book by Rosaria Butterfield, Learning Evangelism from Jesus by Jerem Bars, and The Answer by some guy named Randy Pope. I'm not sure exactly who he is, but no, the, if you've been around us, you know that Randy has written this book that is a wonderful, wonderful uh, asset to our church and to churches at large and really believers all over the world as they've gotten their hands on it as we think about what is the answer to life. One more I'm going to throw out at you just for this morning is another one from somebody right here in our congregation. Jack Alexander has written this book called The God Impulse and a lot of what I'm going to be sharing this morning has been influenced by what I read in Jack's book. It's also available in the bookstore but outstanding work uh, by Jack, one of our longtime members here. All right. <sighs> that was a lot. Some of you are like, man, he's been talking fast. All right, I'm trying to get all that in. Hopefully you heard it. But I want to jump in now to our focus this morning, which is this idea of seeing our neighbors. How do we see what we need to see in our neighbors? And those who live around us and those that we rub shoulders with, it's really easy for us to see but not see. So our team, our production team has put together, uh, they've worked really hard and so creative and so gifted to put together a, um, a mini film, a short film that you're gonna see pieces of each week at the beginning of the sermons that eventually will encompass a whole story. And so this one this morning is about seeing. And so take a look at this. If I had been the guy that had fallen down with the crutches, I'd have been like, dude, do you not see me? Like what? <laughs> Don't you run back in your house like you don't know what just happened. But we can do that. It's so easy for us to, uh, to see but not really see. Now, it, towards the end of the video, maybe guilt or shame or something started messing with his conscience where he said, okay, I, I can at least go out there and pull his garbage can up for him. Uh, but what we're, what we're thinking about this morning is the ability that we have to look around us but not see what we need to see. The one way I can put it to you is like this. If, have you ever been at, a, um, at an event, some type of gathering, uh, typically in an arena, something like that, where um, there's someone who is painting a picture on a canvas, some large canvas, and as the painter is painting, you have no idea what he's painting. It doesn't seem to be making any sense. And then there's a twist at the end, quite literally, where when he finishes the painting, he turns the canvas around and all of a sudden you go, oh. Oh, now I see. 
That was my experience when I used to work with Campus Crusade for Christ or Crew, and we had a big national conference every other year out in Colorado, and we had about 6,000 of us gathered in this Coliseum, and, and there was a guy that was on stage doing that, and he begins painting this painting, and he's real dramatic about it, and there's paint going everywhere, and I'm going... And I'm starting to feel bad for the guy because I'm thinking, man, whatever you're painting ain't happening, bro. Like, I, I can't, it's, I, I'm not seeing it. And you, uh, halfway through, you're going, oh, man, let's applaud this guy no matter what because this is abstract or something and he wants us to like it. So we'll, pra- you know, we'll praise him. And then he gets to the end of it. And at the very end, as the song comes to a crescendo conclusion, he flips the canvas around and you go, oh. And for him, he was painting the face of Jesus with the crown of thorns and blood running down. And you go, oh. Now I see it. I saw it again in an arena, in a basketball arena, where the halftime entertainment was that. It was a patriotic theme, and he turned it around, and it was these people holding American flags. And... But as long as that thing was upside down, it was like, man, what, what is happening here? And, and here's where we're going this morning. When we see with eyes of distraction, we don't see what we need to see. But when we see with eyes of compassion... With the eyes of Jesus, it's, it's as if the canvas of the world is turned upside down. And all of a sudden we go, oh, now I see. I was looking before and I saw, but I didn't see. And now I do. We're looking at a passage this morning out of Luke chapter 10. And I want to challenge you with something. This passage is a, f- a very, very familiar passage. It's one that if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you've heard of it, you've studied it, you've maybe even heard it taught many times over again. And even if you haven't been around church, even if you're new to this whole church thing, you've heard of it because it's a common vernacular within our culture at large. And that is the Good Samaritan. Even if you don't know the story, you at least know the title and you know it, you, you know the application. We will use that phrase often, oh, that person was a good Samaritan or I want to be a good Samaritan, whatever it may be, even though if you're not familiar with the story, it's, it's quite possibly one of the most often repeated stories in the history of the world. And there's, there's probably a good chance that many people who aren't even Christians don't even understand that it comes from the Bible. So here's my challenge to you this morning. If you're in a place where you've heard this many times over and you've heard it taught many times over, I want you to stop and I want you to quickly just right now pause and say, God, would you give me fresh eyes to see this text anew this morning? To not check out because, I'm, because the guy on stage is going into something that I've heard a thousand times before. So do that for me and let's jump into Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And we'll read through verse 37. The way I'm going to go about doing this is I'm going to teach it as I go. We're going to take it verse by verse and we're going to pull out of it some key truths. And then at the end of it, that'll take us a good amount of time. And at the end of it, I'll give you a couple of things of application to walk away with. So there's three parts to this story. And this is your outline if you'd like to fill in blanks. There's three parts to this story. There's uh, the interaction with the lawyer is act one. Then there's the story itself that Jesus tells. And then the third piece to the story is the question that he asked the lawyer at the end. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to him to uh, to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So lawyer meaning law expert. Okay, we know this. Someone who is uh, an expert in the law, this man was 
most likely a scribe. If you've read some in the Gospels, you hear the Pharisees and the scribes alluded to often. The scribes were a part of the Pharisaical group of, of uh, Jewish people, and they knew the, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law and the Levitical law, better than anyone else. They had it memorized, and they lived it to a T, or so they thought. They thought they lived it perfectly. And so he comes trying to test Jesus. Maybe he's combative, maybe he's not, we don't know. But he comes trying to test Christ to see, is, do you really know your stuff? And he asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We'll come back to that question in just a moment. Jesus answers, verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus is, is playing to his expertise. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus didn't reply with a way that 20 and 21st century good evangelical Christians would have replied, the way that we want him to reply, the way that even as you read through this and his interaction with a lawyer, you maybe get uncomfortable with the way Jesus does reply. Because what we expect him to say here is we expect Jesus to come back with something along the lines of, well, so here's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. You really can't do anything. There's nothing of, of any amount that you could ever do that would ever be warrant, enough, warrant you enough before God to put you into good standing in the presence of God because of your sin. And so here's what I need you to do, lawyer. I need you to uh, pray this prayer with me. Would you bow your head and repeat this prayer after me? And we'll pray the sinner's prayer. And you need to acknowledge your sin before God. And you need to place your faith in me because I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for your sins. And your faith in that sacrifice is the only thing that warrants you as righteous before God. And we would have read that and gone, that's the answer, Jesus. Well done. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus plays to his expertise and places a weight on his head that we would call the heaviness of the law. And he says, okay, you tell me, you're the expert. What does the law say? What's written in it? How does it read? How do you read it? And so the expert responds, verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now what, what this lawyer is doing is he is reciting in summation Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which is the summation of the law, which is what we have often called the, uh, the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the law. Love God, love others. And so Jesus responds to that, and he says, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Interesting. Jesus knows the heart of this lawyer and he knows that the heart of this lawyer is that he thinks he can do this and that he is doing this perfectly. Or at least he's convinced himself in all the subcategories that the Pharisees have made of the law that he's doing this. And so he places the weight of the law onto the head of this lawyer and he says, look, and here's the implication that we can read into this, understanding the whole of Scripture. You have answered correctly. Do this, parenthetical, perfectly. Do this perfectly, and yeah, you'll live. Eternal life, sure. If you can love God perfectly with pure motives throughout the history of your life, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you can do that perfectly, and not only that, but love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, and by the way, and Jesus doesn't say this, but... Neighbor is at anybody and everybody. 
And the lawyer might suspect this. So he does what we all would do. He seeks to justify himself. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? I, I want to make something really clear. We are the lawyer. This is the way the human heart works. We ask the same two questions that the lawyer asks. This is the disposition of how we operate, which is to say, what must I do to get to God? That's how we just naturally, that's our default. What must I do? And then once we get that answer, the doing, if you really want to try and earn your way to God, then you've got to be perfect in motivation and heart motivation and love and love for God and love for others. And if you can do that, then yes, you can have eternal life. But here's the, the bad news is you can't do it. Now, it, we would have loved to have seen from the lawyer at that point when Jesus says, okay, yes, you've answered correctly, now go and do it and you will live. What we needed to see from the lawyer at that point is a complete brokenness by the heaviness of the law to say, I, I can't do that, Jesus. What we needed to see from, from, from the lawyer is what we saw from the sinner in Matthew 18 where you had a tax collector and you had a sinner uh, uh, praying together and the tax collector cries out to God and he says when the heaviness of the law hits him he says have mercy on me a sinner and he cries out to God under the weight of the law but that's not what the lawyer does here the lawyer says okay deep down I know I can't do that so I'll try to justify myself who is my neighbor now here again the answer that would be most comfortable for us would be Jesus to give him a straight answer. The answer, the answer would, that Jesus would give would hopefully be something like, well, your neighbor is literally anybody that you come in contact with, even your worst of enemies, even those who, when you spend time with them, you can't wait to get out of the room, even those who suck the life out of you, not just the people that like you and you like them and are easy to love, but even the ones that are hardest to love, even the ones that might be like a Samaritan. But he doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus does what he so profoundly and effectively does throughout all of his ministry. He tells a story. Stories are powerful. We know this as parents. You know, if I, can, if I tell my kids to do something, I've got about a 10% chance they'll do it. But if I can somehow be creative enough through the power of the Holy Spirit within me to come up with some type of narrative to, enter, to help them enter into, some type of story where they feel like they're part of something bigger and they can see it and they can visualize it and the ultimate result is they do what I need them to do, then I've got about a 100% chance of them seeing it and doing it. Narrative and story is always more heart-grabbing than command. And Jesus knows this. And so instead of saying, well, your neighbor is anybody, he tells a story so that his heart is pulled into the story in a way to where he can't deny the implication. And so we get to part two of the story, part two of the, of, of the passage, which is the story. So Jesus replies and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now I want to point a couple of things out to you. You notice that it says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a reason that 
that's used, that Jesus uses words down because it's quite literally down. Not necessarily meaning south because they're actually going east. A lot of times we say down when we're talking about south. I'm going to go down to Macon, right? Meaning south, but he's meaning literally down. Jerusalem was 3,000, or is still to this day, it didn't shift. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level, below the Mediterranean Sea, and they're 17 miles apart. So think about that. That is a quick descent, 4,000 feet descent from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this road that Jesus is alluding to, this is a made-up story. This is not something that actually happened, although it very well could have. But it's real places, and this road that he's referring to, the Jericho Road, is an infamous road. It's a very well-known road to the original hearers of Jesus' parable here. And so they would have quickly understood what road he was talking about. Let me show you a picture of what this looks like. This is a picture I actually snapped a couple years ago uh, when I was able to go to Israel. And this is looking uh, east towards Jericho. Now, way off in the distance there, it was a hazy kind of cloudy day. But right over the crest of those mountains down in that valley as you move towards the Dead Sea is this little oasis, Jericho. Now, Jericho is literally an oasis in the desert. It's subtropical and it was a place that people love to live. And that little green little line there in the middle is where there's some water, a trickling stream. And that would have possibly been where the road to Jericho was. Behind me, probably another five to eight miles, I don't know, was, uh, is Jerusalem to my back. And so the road would probably have meandered through those uh, through those um, valleys and in between those mountains, there have been tons of caves and places for robbers to hide out. Another shot of it, that what, what it could have looked like is that's not the road that we know of today, uh, but it would have looked something similar to that. So you kind of see the picture of what this would have looked like. And so you get an understanding of, of how it was so common for people to kind of hide out in these caves and in these little crevices and then attack those who were going by. So it says that he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, we know that nothing is by chance under the sovereignty of God. By chance, a priest was going, here's that word again, down. So what does that tell us? That tells us that he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. I'm going to come back to that because that's significant. He was going down that road and when he, here's our theme, saw him. He saw him. He passed by where? On the other side of the road. Now, I know you heard me say that it's significant that he, to say that, he, uh, that, that, that the priest was going down. And the priests were the descendants of Aaron who was the brother of Moses. And, and the priests were considered, um, assumed to be the most holy, some of the most holy godly men. They, they took place in the, uh, they took, um, uh, they were leaders over the sacrificial system in the temple and the sacred sacrificial system. But here's the thing that as I was reading and doing some research on this, I came across something I had never come across before that I didn't know was, was the case. One of the things that I read about first century Jerusalem and Jericho was that many priests who would have operated in the temple in Jerusalem actually lived 17 miles away in Jericho. It was common for them, A, because Jerusalem was so crowded, and B, because people loved living in Jericho because of the tropical nature of where it was. 
And so the, the priests, when on duty, would come in and serve their time for however length of time, weeks or months or whatever it may be, and then they would go back home to Jericho. Now, the reason that I'm bringing that up is because one of the most common excuses that I have heard taught about why possibly the priest would have passed by on the other side, not just passed by, but way on the other side, was because, because he was a priest and because he was a holy man, he knew the ceremonial law, which was if you touch a dead person, which he presumed this man to be, dead in the ditch, that you would then be declared for two weeks ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And therefore would not be able to perform your duties in the temple. But this man is leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving the temple. He's just performed his duties. He's going home. So is that really at play? Here's my point. We like to make excuses for this priest of why he may have passed. But what we begin to see and what Jesus wanted his hearers to understand, and they would have understood culturally, is that this man had no good reason to pass by other than he just didn't want to. The attitude of this man's heart in this parable is simply, that looks messy, I don't think I should get involved. Have you said that before? I don't know, that's a pretty hairy situation and there's a lot involved with that and that would certainly require me to set aside my agenda and my schedule and my plans and all the places where I need to be to enter into that mess. Maybe the first century hearers are thinking, well, what about the Levites? Levites are also godly people who assist the priests in the temple. Surely another holy man like the Levite would come by and, and, and he would enter into helping this man. And, and so Jesus very quickly says, oh, okay. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite, descendants of Levi, that's who Levites are, when he came to the place, and here it is again, saw him. There's no mistaking. They saw him. He too passed by on the other side. Now this next verse, verse 33, starts with this great word, but. I have a habit and have for a long time of any time there's this great transition word but in the Bible that hinges, that the passage hinges on. I circle it and there's many of them in scripture. My favorite one is Ephesians 2.4 where for three verses Paul has laid out in gross detail how sinful we are when he says things like we're dead in the trespasses of our sin on which we once walked. That we follow the, uh, the course of this world, that we follow the prince of the power of the air, literally Satan himself, because in this spiritual world, there's only two teams, Team Jesus and Team Satan. And if you're not on Team Jesus, then you're by default on Team Satan, whether you realize it or not. And so this is what's laid before us in these first three verses. And you, you get to the end of verse three and you go, oh man, this is bad. And then verse four says, but God being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together again with Christ. By grace you have been saved. One of the most beautiful uh, contractions but there in the Bible. And this is another one because the first century hearers would have heard this but and what followed it and there would have been gasps. He says, but a Samaritan and everybody in the audience, all the Jewish hearers are going, don't go there, Jesus. Don't you dare make the Samaritan the hero of this story. 
You've trashed on our priests. You've trashed on our Levites. They've passed by on the other side for no good reason. And now you're going to take a Samaritan. Now listen, Jesus, it would have been fine if you would have picked maybe a different sect of Judaism that we don't fully agree with theologically and we love to turn our noses up at. But ultimately we could say, oh yeah, I could see them doing that and being gracious and merciful and compassionate. But a Samaritan... And our current day be like, okay, well, yeah, okay, maybe you go with a Baptist or a Methodist or something like that. I can understand that, right? But an extremist Muslim, really, Jesus? You're going to go there. Don't you dare make him the hero of this story. He says, but a Samaritan who they hated as he journeyed came to where he was, and here it is again, and when he saw, but he saw in a different way. He didn't just look and pass by, he saw, and look at the words that come right behind it, he saw him and he had compassion. Do you know that in the scriptures, the the attribute that is most commonly spoken of of Jesus in the Gospels is that of compassion and mercy over and over and over again. Let me give you just one example of where we see the seeing connected to compassion. Matthew 9 36 says this. If we have that I'll read it if we don't. There we go. When he saw the crowds So here's the connection of seeing and compassion. He saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There's a seeing here that penetrates beyond what you see outwardly and straight to the heart of the need. Because it says that he saw them and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were helpless and harassed. Now, if you walked up to anybody in that scene from that passage in Matthew 9 where Jesus steps off the boat and he sees these crowds on the hillside and you walked up to these people and you said, hey, give me two words to describe yourself. I doubt that anybody would go, oh yeah, that's easy, helpless and harassed. That's what I am. They would have come up with all kinds of other words, but Jesus sees through all the outward appearance and he says, these are people who don't have a shepherd, much less a good shepherd, who can move into their helplessness and their harassment spiritually, emotionally, and bring healing. He sees with eyes of compassion that are more than just what we see, but sees to the heart and to the need. This is the kind of seeing that we see from the Samaritan in this parable. He saw him and he had compassion. But listen, he didn't just have compassion and go, bless his heart. Oh man, that looks rough. I I really pity that guy and just move on. He didn't just have compassion. His compassion moved him to action. Because listen, compassion without action is merely pity restrained by selfishness. That's all it is. I pity that person. That's, that's really unfortunate. But if the compassion doesn't move us to action, to moving into that person's life in such a way to where we bring healing and restoration and the balm of Jesus, then is it compassion biblically? Is it gospel compassion? Is it Jesus' compassion or is it just worldly pity? And so we see in this parable that he has compassion on him. And then he went to him, verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he keeps going. And then he set him on his animal 
and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He didn't just move towards him and say, man, I'm so sorry, I'll go get help. He didn't just move towards him and bind up his wounds with oil and wine, but he actually went the extra mile and put him on his, his animal, his donkey, whatever it was, and took him to an inn and took care of him until he couldn't take care of him any longer. And then this is what he does. And the next day he took out two denarii. Denarii are a day's worth of, of, uh, of pay. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. In other words, whatever uh, debt he incurs, don't put it on his account. Put it on mine. And then he makes this promise. I will repay, here's the promise, when I come back. This man is invested. He's not just helping temporarily. He is invested in a relationship to see full and complete restoration and friendship occur from the opportunity to move into this situation with compassion. Now, third part of the passage. Jesus comes with the question, the question he looks back at the lawyer having finished the story and he says which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers it's at this point that I it's not in the text this is just me trying to visualize what this would have looked like that I tend to look at the lawyer with clenched teeth giving an answer because he knows the answer and there's no way out. This, this sly lawyer who came to test Jesus has now been backed into a corner. And he can't wiggle his way out. He knows the answer. And so through clenched teeth he says, the one who showed him mercy. <laughs> and Jesus responds with a command. And Jesus said to him, you go, and you do likewise. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't take the weight off of him? Because this man's heart was still self-sufficient. He still needed to be, to be broken by the law. He still sent him away with a command, you go and do likewise. Now we know from the rest of the story of the gospel and of what Jesus did for us and the fact that he sent the Holy Spirit, that he gives us this same command. Yes, you go and you love like I love, but you can't do it. You won't do it. You'll mess it up. So that's why I've given you the Holy Spirit. And so it's important for us to always orient our hearts first and foremost in the gospel, in what Jesus has done for us so that through that, we are actually fueled to do what he's actually called us to do. And so I just want to do something here um, to read this story, this Good Samaritan story, in a little bit different way where we see Jesus as the rescuer and we see ourselves as the one dead in the ditch. And so it goes a little bit like this. It, it goes, and I'll make it personal to me. It goes that Jesus saw me and he had compassion and his compassion moved him towards me. He saw me dead in the ditch of my sins. I wasn't half dead, I was dead. And he moved to me 
And he didn't just come to me and have a distant compassion. He came to me and he moved towards me and he bound my wounds, my deep heart level wounds that had alienated me from the God of the universe himself. And he poured out not oil and wine, but the very precious blood of himself. He poured out his blood, as the scriptures say, by his wounds, we are healed. And so he healed me and he bound my wounds with the precious blood of the savior. But then he didn't stop there. He didn't put me on an animal. He put me on his back, the Lamb of God. The very same lacerated back that carried my cross to Golgotha. And he carried me there, doing for me what I could not do for myself. But he didn't stop there. He then took me not to an innkeeper, but to the Father himself. And he ushered me into the throne room of God. And he put me into the loving embrace of the Father. And he says, you take care of him. And anything, any debt that he incurs, don't put it on his account. Put it on mine. And then he makes this promise. Hold him until I come back. Because I will come back and until I do, and he looks at me and he says, you go and do what I have done for you. Love like I have loved you. And it's at that moment that the gospel penetrates into our hearts and we understand that Jesus has done for us the unthinkable. That we are then fueled by his power within us through the Holy Spirit to do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the inexpressible by the world's standards to go and move towards people, even our enemies, in such a way that they only see the love of God, not some great thing that we're doing. But they see the gospel, they see Jesus. But in order to do that, in order to do that, there has got to be a great understanding of what that requires of us. And here's our biggest hurdle. Our biggest struggle is ourselves, our agenda, our schedule, and our busyness. One of the great quotes, one of my favorite things I read as I was preparing for this sermon is from the book called Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. And he was speaking to this story of the Good Samaritan and he said this. He said, the priest and the Levite saw a problem. The Samaritan saw a person made in the image of God. My struggle is that my margins are so thin to when opportunity presents itself to love someone in a way that's going to require me to sacrifice my already thin margins, I say, I can't do it. I look at that issue just like the priest did and say, oh, that's messy. I don't know if I should get involved. And what Jesus is asking us, the church, to do is to ask the question, what would it look like for me to die to self to the extent that I actually begin to love the way that Jesus has loved me? What does it look like for me to hold my calendar that rules my life with open hands? Understanding I've got responsibilities in this life that I can't shirk, but also understanding that there's margin that doesn't need to be so thin. And it's going to take some painful death to extend that margin to be more available to love like Jesus loves. I'll give you a silly example of how I fail at this often. I'm not a very good neighbor. I really am not, ask my neighbors. 
I get so, I mean, this is not an indictment on perimeter. This is an indictment on my schedule. I, I get so caught up in church work that I don't have time for my neighbors. I think Jesus looks at me oftentimes and says, man, you got this all backwards. So a couple days ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I'm in my yard, front lawn, and I'm, it's, it hasn't rained for a while. I'm trying to get water on the grass, and my sprinkler won't cooperate. It's one of those that does the little thing and then, you know, shutters back, and it wasn't doing the shuttering thing. It was just, wasn't working. It was just spinning like 90 to nothing, just throwing water everywhere, and half of it wasn't going on the grass. And so I was frustrated. I'm wrestling with this hose and this sprinkler, and anyway, my, my neighbor, Larry, drives up right in front of my house, and he rolls down the window, and he wants to talk. And I'm giving him every nonverbal clue, Larry, right now ain't the time, bro. Do you not see what's going on here? Do you not see what I'm doing with the, with the sprinkler? And, what? and he just keeps asking me questions, and I keep giving him every cue. Yeah, okay, uh-huh, yeah, that's great, all right, mm-hmm. this is happening. <laughs> and after a couple of minutes, I guess he finally picks up on the cues, and he's like, all right, I'll see you later, and he drives on by to his house. I finally get the sprinkler working. I go back in the house. I'd been thinking and praying about this sermon, and it was like the Holy Spirit just hit me with a two-by-four. I said, are you an idiot? I said, yes, I am. (laughs) Do you think watering your lawn is more important than that conversation with Larry? Put down the sprinkler and go to the car and talk, man. If the grass dies, the grass dies. What about his soul? How has God positioned me where I live to love Jesus like he loved me? Man, I love the sprinkler. I didn't love Larry. So I want to make a promise to you. Uh, There's 16 people who live on my street. As I looked at it, I I know eight of them. And when I say no, I I just kind of know who they are and I know their names. You have a thing in your bulletin that I didn't plan it this way. It kind of worked out perfectly, but there's eight little slots. It comes from the Art of Neighboring, the book. And this is just a little tool for you to use to simply write down in these squares eight of your neighbors. Write down their names, write down their needs, anything that they have that you might get to know as you get to know them and begin praying for them. Another thing that I'll make you aware of is this, this neighbor up challenge that you'll see on the way out. Grab one of these. Today is to see your neighbor, and it gives you ideas on how you can engage your neighbor. And you can write your name in chalk on there just to basically say, I'm taking this challenge. I want to love my neighbors well. And you just write your name, the fam- your family's name on the, on the chalkboard out there. But I'll make you a promise. I preached the last week of this sermon series. And so I've got three weeks, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce myself to my neighbors that I haven't met before. They're not projects, by the way. They're people. And I'm not going to do it just so that I can report back to you, hey, I did it. I'm going to do it because I feel challenged by the Holy Spirit to, to love people around me the way that God loves me. So here's the challenge. Would you this week and in the weeks to come, would you ask God to give you eyes of compassion? That's the simple prayer. Father, we pray that. We pray that you would give us eyes of compassion to move towards others in the way that you have moved towards us. We thank you that you have rescued us from sin and death. We were dead in the ditch and you moved towards us. Lord, I pray for those who are in the room this this morning who are investigating Christianity and not sure that they believe all this. And Lord, I pray even now as we are sitting with you in this moment that you would open their eyes to see the God of compassion and that they would be healed by you as you have poured out your blood for them. 
We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.